any of the blame belong to you? Yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington. Surely God is mad at America. It is also about what you, the people who love this country, the citizens of the United States of America. It's really <laughs> weird. It's really weird. I did get Greta Van Susten to retweet me last week, though, so Very it's nice. a little victories. It's a little I used to be very active, and then I deleted mine, and I haven't I haven't really relaunched it. So we're we're working on it. I feel like Twitter is like the final the final form of trying to like start yourself in politics. Like people have made <laughs> entire careers off of Twitter presences, and then it's yes. mine where I'm like just you know tweeting about being in lines for too long, and I'm really trying to maneuver it. But look, there's only so many times you can uh, reply to CNN or something about <laughs> <laughs> before it starts to sound like you're just like. You deserve to be in a loony bin. That's neither here nor there. I mean, it works for Donald Trump, so. Hey, follow the example. It's going pretty well <laughs> for him. All right. Well, welcome to Modcast. Um, we've been back from a little hiatus. Uh, it's just me. Alex is on a skiing trip. We're all really jealous. I assume he's doing some type of uh, mean kid on the other side of the mountain bullying people who don't have their right. I don't know. Um, <laughs> today with me uh, is Ethan Gregory. Ethan, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, uh, my name is Ethan Gregory, as she said. Uh, I'm from Alabama, you know, the, the deep red south. I identify as a very liberal Republican, something that you don't find very often, and uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. And um, Ethan is on today, first because he's a charmer, but also because um, he's uh, <laughs> done some writing for the American Moderate about um, the Affordable Care Act, which, as we all know, has been a really contentious issue in the last few days. Do you kind of want to um, talk about what you wrote for American Mod and then discuss, uh, you know, the general tenor and we can just, uh, you know, talk a little bit further from there? All right. So I wrote a piece uh, called Donald Trump is exactly what American healthcare needs. And I really wanted to write from a perspective that was that was counter to this this narrative that you're hearing from mainly the left that, you know, the the ACA was was irreprehensible. And like it was it was a good thing and that nothing bad was ever existing within it. Um, and so I wanted to kind of push back on those sentiments and show like some of the problems that did exist and how Donald Trump can help move American healthcare forward, uh, especially with regards to southern states that have been so resistant to ACA and, and Obamacare. Great. So do you want to talk, expand a little bit on your role? You, say, you said to everybody you're from Alabama, but you, you're taking a pretty active role, right? Uh, how do you mean? Uh, well, um, you know, as... As somebody who works in the state house day to day, you are interacting with, you know, people and their direct responses to uh, right, this right. this bill. Uh, so yeah, I, I work for the House Democratic Caucus here, uh, researching policy as an intern and and just kind of getting a feel for, you know, what what we can do, especially in Alabama, to to help our citizens. And so I hear a lot of a lot of arguments from a lot of Republicans uh, as to why they didn't want. Uh, to expand Medicaid and accept ACA, and and so like, and a lot of times I think people think it's solely because it was called Obamacare, but there were real qualms with it here, uh, and so after hearing those and hearing the things they've said, I really kind of look at Donald Trump, and and I'm hoping that you know he can come up with a a policy that that helps the South and and people that were resistant to ACA. 
Well, as we know, you know, there have been major, major shifts in how ACA is being budgeted, um, you know, what ACA looks like in the next, you know, not even just in the next presidency, but in the next Congress. Um, could you talk a little bit more about, obviously, um, you know, they, the House Republicans were able to pass uh, the newest budget bill, which does not fund major provisions of Obamacare. Um, you know, what does that look like in terms of direct defunding? Because, uh, you know, I remember working at, when I was uh, a, a research fellow on Capitol Hill, I remember going to a hearing based on Obama, uh, Obamacare and Affordable Care Act and uh, speaking to a staffer and he said, okay, so you read the background details and I said, oh yeah, no, I read the act and he kind of looked at me cross-eyed because apparently nobody on Capitol Hill has read the entire bill. You know, I I read some, you know, 80-page summary and thought I, you know, thought I knew everything, but I barely grazed the surface. I mean, you know, for an act that's this complicated, how can we understand what, you know, the next, it, obviously, everybody got the CNN news alert, right, that says, uh, you know, all of, um, House Republicans take first step. What does that first step look like? And what does that mean for people who are day-to-day -day grappling with, okay, is this care going to be available? Am I going to be able to go to the doctor tomorrow? Uh, right. Well, so they, they passed the budget, and but that doesn't mean... I think a lot of people are selling this as, oh, everybody lost their health insurance overnight as soon as they did that. And I, I think that that's something we kind of need to dispel because that's not actually the case, right? Uh, and so, obviously, just looking at the political the political moves to, uh, to what has to happen, they have to repeal Obamacare first because it's a campaign promise. And so, of course, they're going to defund it first, and they're going to they're going to repeal it, and then they're going to replace it, is what they say. Um, so, to answer your question, I'm not really sure. Like, you know, it's all kind of a game right now. It's all a political game. But you know, right now, people they still have their health insurance, and that's something important to keep in mind. And I don't think that we're they're going to. I don't think Republicans are going to let people start dying in the street without health coverage. Uh, you know, there seems to be this this narrative that exists on both sides that the other side wants what's terrible for America and that they're intentionally trying to undermine, uh, you know, the citizens and the things that make American life so great. But I think something important for us to remember is, you know, every, no one gets elected wanting to do a bad job. They want what's best for Americans. And so, you know, yeah, they're going to do things we don't agree with. Uh, but in the end, I believe that they're not going to let people just die in the streets. Okay, so you talked a little bit about, you know, being from a southern state, and your article itself talked a little bit about exchanges. Would you mind going in a little bit more talking about what works in the south and what doesn't? Because obviously, you know, American politics is intensely regional. Uh, regional. I mean, you know, people, I'm from the northeast, people view Obamacare as very, very different, and you know, in application and in reality than, um, you know, people do in the south. So what's the perception, and you know, how do you think that overall Southern people think that, uh, you know, changes should be made? Does that question make sense? It, it does. Uh, so, like, something really that has just plagued the South is is there's no competition here. Uh, and so whenever you have these, these state exchanges and things, right now the only health care provider in the exchange for Alabama is Blue Cross Blue Shield. There's no competition. There's There's nothing to you know, 
make them negotiate prices or, or really serve needs of people. They're just getting to charge whatever the hell they want to, and it's leaving Alabamians out to draw. And that's that's not just Alabama. That's a lot of southern states because a lot of healthcare insurers have had to pull out of these exchanges, and now there's no competition, and that's why we've seen the spike in prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also there's a lot of healthcare issues just like with the public health in the South. So right, I know Alabama in the in December was named the worst state in the nation for diabetes after being second for so many years. We're now the worst. So. Uh, well, like we were the second worst, and now we're the worst. Uh, and then we have terrible difficult. motherhood and infant mortality rates, and we have heart, terrible heart disease rates. And so, obviously, healthcare it just costs more here. Uh, and so, whenever you add up all the public health issues we have, and the fact there's no competition, and Blue Cross Blue Shield is getting to run the table completely, uh, it leaves us out to dry. And that's why we have such a high uninsured rate. And something I think Donald Trump can really help with that is is dropping state lines. And that's been a Republican talking point for so long, right? Uh, dropping state lines and letting people sell insurance across state lines. And so we can go to New York or, or uh, California where there are you know five or six insurers in the market and we can get a health care plan that they're having to compete with other people. And so we can get competitive prices with good coverage. And that's something we desperately need. Wow, so that's really interesting, and I'm I'm particularly interested in uh, one of the points that you brought up in terms of public health issues in the state of Alabama, um, and you know one of the things that was more widely publicized about um, Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act was that it went out of the way to treat um, pre-existing conditions, or excuse me, not pre-existing conditions, yes, pre-existing conditions, but um, uh, preventable issues, and uh, specifically heart disease, specifically things like diabetes. Uh, you know, having things like preventative care covered, I think, is actually one of the victories of Obamacare. And, uh, you know, what do you think in terms of restructuring, you know, obviously not all of the elements of whatever care package the Republicans are able to propose and pass will be totally different. I mean, I think that one of the biggest strengths of Obamacare is the ability to discuss, um, you know, preventative care. I'm Christian Gillibrand, of, uh, senator from New York, was speaking on the floor, uh, I believe it was on Tuesday, and, you know, in a two-minute floor speech talked a lot about the importance of breast cancer screenings and, or, you know, early pregnancy testings, prenatal care, um, that can really save a lot of money long-term. Do you think that preventative care is being adequately administered in, you know, in Alabama, in, you know, some of the, for some of the people that you're working with, or is that a failure as well in terms of the, like, you know, the scant state state exchanges? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, preventative care is something that just, it doesn't get paid attention to here. Uh, I mean, you can look at our obesity rate and see that, you know, there's so many obese people and, and they're not going to the doctors. And of course, they're going to have health care concerns down the road. Uh, and so to answer, I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but you have to find a way to incentivize the private insurers to, to be more you know comprehensive with uh, preventable care mm-hmm. uh, and and. Not only that, but they need to be encouraging their constituents to go get preventative treatment. It doesn't need to be just a postcard from your doctor. Mm -hmm. There needs to be something in the private insurance market that incentivizes people with like uh, maybe a tax credit or I don't don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but you have to incentivize people to go get 
private care. And Obamacare did that to an extent, but to to the states that rejected Obamacare, we did we were kind of left out to draw. Mm-hmm. So now that that adds into a, a, you know a different question. Obviously, Obamacare itself is incredibly expensive, right? It's one of the biggest criticisms. It's one of the things that people always talk about when they're discussing Obamacare, when they're discussing you know the national budget, and you know are we going to carry this steps through, but. The fact is that the Republican budget that was recently proposed doesn't actually cut back on costs despite major repeals. So, I mean, could you talk about a little bit, you mentioned a little bit in terms of the state spending angle, but, you know, the economics of all of this, right? Because the bottom line is that these are economic issues for states. I don't think any, and you kind of mentioned this, I'm conservative as well, and I don't think anybody is sitting there in an ivory tower and cackling about how, you know, people are going to die and how funny that will be. You know, right. at the end of the day, it's a real battle of can we afford to fund this? Would you, I mean, let's talk through in terms of the economics of this issue because it is an incredibly expensive plan. And how do we, you know, use the market in a way that, opens up costs without making, you know, making the entire burden fall on the taxpayer. Speaking specifically to the economics of Alabama, one reason that we rejected Obamacare is because we couldn't afford it. Uh, and, you know, obviously when they first passed it, they, the federal government was providing 100% funding uh, for all new enrollees. But after 2020, that drops to, um, it drops to, only 90% of, of new enrollment. And so we were faced with the problem of, okay, when we get to 2020, we're going to have a lot of issues because if we can't fund Medicaid at the rate now that is laughably low in Alabama, it is like, I think we cover up to 18% of the federal poverty line and that's it. Uh, and so like, that's terrible, obviously. Uh, but if we can't, if we can barely afford to fund that, how in the world are we going to fund the new enrollees of up to 138% of the federal poverty line? Um, so with the economics of that in mind, I think something Trump could really do is, and it was a campaign promise, was block grant Medicaid. Uh, obviously, Alabama's not going to be able to expand to 138% like uh, Obamacare promised. But you know, if, you, if we are able to get the funds without these – these strict federal mandates on them, we can actually expand our Medicaid to help cover the, the lowest income people who are actually driving up the cost the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of economic issues tied in with that just all together. Cool. Now, I mean, that, uh, that was a really great in-depth look. And, uh, you know, just to clarify, those are talking about enrollees in terms of uh, state-sponsored coverage, right? So it's not people that are, you know, getting covered by private insurers. Those are people that right. are, yeah, coming in in like through the public. Um, I mean, this is an interesting question, right? Because right now, one of the biggest criticisms of Obamacare is that we're letting things fall on the shoulders of the public. I mean, I think there should be a way that we that we allow for private insurers to. Um, you know, we put some put some uh, stress on them without um, necessarily driving down business. I mean, I think one of the good things about Obamacare, and there were a lot of good things about Obamacare. There are a lot of bad things about Obamacare too. But there's a lot of good things. Um, you know, one of the good things was that 
uh, you know, they address the pre-existing pre conditions. You know, people shouldn't necessarily, people shouldn't have to worry about their care dropping if they have cancer. Uh, you know, people shouldn't have to worry about them, dro people dropping their care if they get pregnant. I think that that's, that's a fair expectation. But I think that that can be addressed through the market. I 100% I agree. Uh, uh, I guess this is the, the Republican side of me coming out when I say, like, I don't believe the government can fix all of America's problems. I believe that part is on us. Uh, and so, you know... Obviously, people need to be able to get coverage with pre-existing conditions, and, and, and you shouldn't be dropped if you get pregnant. But I don't think it's the government's place to to fix all of these issues. I think there's things that they can work with the insurance companies to do, but it needs to exist within the private sector, and they need to start taking care of people better. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that needs to be the government's role, is making sure they're doing their job, not overtaking their job. So that's like, uh, you know, industry restriction, or excuse me, industry um, regulations as opposed to industry mandates or right, public mandates. Right, right. Uh, so many of the things that people hated about Obamacare within the, the political elite sphere, I guess to say, is that, you know, the mandates. People in America just do not like being told they have to do something. Uh, <laughs> and, and I know I certainly don't. Um, and so when you when you start doing mandates, you're going to have a lot of problems. And 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 I think there's just there's better ways to do it than mandates. I think I think regulations a lot better. Okay. Now, I mean, this is and this is talking about some of the developments that have happened in the past few days, right? Because things have really really launched up. I mean, passing the budget resolution is one thing, but you know now we're coming into the somewhat volatile statements of the president elect. And you know, I mean. Trump in his in a speech I think it was you know yesterday morning uh, we're recording this on Monday um Sunday morning vowed that everybody would be covered under the new GOP platform I mean is that how do you think I mean this is obviously a question that neither of us have the answer to but are we going to be able to see real outcomes from the, you know, President-elect's mandates and what the House can actually carry, or House and Senate can actually carry out, because it seems like there's going to be a real disconnect in terms of those. I mean, if you listen to Trump talk about um, health care, you know, he can sound almost like Bernie Sanders sometimes, because, you know, he talks about how, oh, everybody's going to be covered, there won't be any gaps, you know, we're going to pay for it, every, oh, we're going to all pay for it, it's going to be great. Um, but there isn't a lot of, obviously, there isn't a lot of, um, I wouldn't necessarily call President-elect Trump, Trump uh, a wonk of any kind. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think there's definitely a gap in terms of execution. I mean, what do you think this GOP plan looks like? Obviously, this is totally, you know, this is totally... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Uh, um, so, Rand Paul kind of previewed his his uh, his bill that he is going to be introducing and I think a, an important distinction to make from what he proposes proposes uh, my southern accent is coming out way too thickly uh, and what Just President the right Obama amount. we did, all sound like we're from Boston on this podcast uh, <laughs> uh, is like so Rand Paul wants universal access, whereas President Obama wanted universal coverage. And I think that that's an important distinction to make. Uh, whenever you, you start, like, okay, so here's a good example. President Trump has said that he's going to force the, the prescription companies to, to negotiate with them uh, for better prices all around. 
So, like, that's something good. And I think that's something Congress and the president-elect can get on. But whenever it comes to Trump saying things like, uh, like he's going to – everybody's going to be covered. I'm sure Paul Ryan is just cringing in his, in his seat. Uh, I'm not sure what their plan looks like, though. I think that they're going to drop the restrictions on state borders. I think they're going to drop the mandate, uh, and that's going to come with a lot of – that's going to come with a lot of things as well. Uh because of funding and and prices but honestly the gop just they don't have a choice they have to get this right if they don't get it right 2018 will be a very ugly year for them oh absolutely i feel like this is i i I can't remember um i think it was described in uh oh god was it a political cartoon he was in the in the post it's like rudy like finally they have their chance to uh you know finally the gop has our chance right to you know make a change we've been talking about this all day long um but now yeah now we have the shot you know to kind of get this right and i know this is really interesting too because it breaks down into factions for the gop obviously um you know there's there was factions on display in this most recent election right there were you know the old guard there was john mccain there's the libertarians there are people you know there's the evangelical right it's really it's like a veritable united nations of republicans um <laughs> which republicans would hate right a com- uh, comparison right to they would hate that <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know how to curry favor, but, um, so it's kind of interesting because this, you know, this is an issue that's being taken on in different ways by different factions. I mean, just, uh, you know, in the past week, there was a a disagreement between Senator Susan Collins from Maine and Rand Paul, who, uh, Rand Paul is the first one to draft. I think he, he announced that he had his bill, um, alternative bill drafted and ready to go, um, yeah, this past week, based on the the budget resolution, he was actually the only person to vote against in the Senate, or the only Republican to vote against in the Senate. Um, but, you know, Susan Collins is offering a completely different framework, and that's the difference between a libertarian faction and an old guard Rockefeller Republican from the Northeast perspective. So it's kind of weird to see how this is going to, you know, hash out. Not all of the, you know, there's the Tuesday group, there's the Liberty Caucus, there's all these different factions. It's really, really interesting to see, yes, the GOP needs to do this, but there are also different factions within the GOP that all have very different approaches to this. You know, I think right. in general we're we're reflecting at least uh, you know in terms of uh, tax credits and uh, you know discussing financial incentives. Um, you know, this is more of the northeastern Republican perspective, but there are definitely libertarian wings in the party that are saying, you know, we don't we can't do this. We can't supply health insurance. We can't have this as an option. You know, we you know we're kind of echo- echoing what you said in terms of. The government can't fix everything. And it's really, really interesting. I'm really interested to see how these Trump era, these, you know, new GOP seats um, in the House of Representatives, these people who were kind of, they surfed in on the Trump wave into the House of Representatives, how they're going to, uh, you know, show their constituents that this is going to be a priority. Because at the end of the day, you know, they were elected on a platform that was kind of a, don't worry about it, we'll cover you, just not the Obama way. And it's really, really interesting to see how that's going to play out, if that'll be the, in fact, more liberal faction within the party going forward. I know, you know, in general, there's kind of some flexibility. Many Republicans 
would never call Donald Trump a conservative. So how does that, I mean, what does that look like? I think this is a really interesting time in terms of how we can, um, you know, see different elements in the party play out and also which ones are going to triumph. And based on political power alone, you know, the old guard might not win. Right. Well, you know, this is kind of, it's kind of similar to whenever President Obama came in and they started trying to introduce, you know, okay, how are we going to live up to these promises? Because you had the progressive wing wanting single payer to get rid of all the health insurance uh, companies and let's just do single payer. And then the the more moder- moderate wing was trying to push what now is Obamacare. Uh, and so in that case, the old guard did win. And, um, you know, it would be really interesting how it plays out. I'm interested to see if, if maybe even – President Trump, because Lord knows I don't consider him a conservative by any means, uh, it'd be interesting to see if he kind of stabs the Freedom Caucus and the, the truly Tea Party kind of conservatism in the back, and and they move to work with moderate Democrats to actually get something passed. Now, that'd be – I'm not going to hold my breath, but <laughs> I think that'd be a really interesting, nar- uh, in- really interesting narrative to see play out moving forward. Uh, who knows what happens with this president? I think we've all seen that he is he is going to be unpredictable and that we'll know everything from Twitter before we know from MSNBC. You know, more than ever, and I, this was interesting, I heard, um, I think, you know, it was on Saturday Night Live this week, they said something along the lines of, you know, the thing about the Trump presidency is uh, he makes all of his policy decisions based on wouldn't it be funny if... <laughs> it's so, so funny because I feel like I'm like a maven for March Madness. I'm really, really into it. But I feel like every political, you know, every political prediction is based on some type of fantasy football. Like, what if, you know, what if McCain were to sponsor a bill? What, if, you know, what I mean? It's like right. I'm constantly like, what, what if? And then, you know, I this happened within, you know, within the staff of American Moderate this week, but somebody made some type of, you know, outlandish prediction. It's, you know, you can always make a sweeping prediction. It came true. <laughs> and it's so, so funny to think of that as kind of our political situation. But it's actually, it's interesting because we've been talking in the Republican framework. We haven't even touched on the Democratic framework because it's causing, uh, you know, this healthcare issue is causing a little bit of a riot on that side, too. I mean, I don't know if you saw the recent, I'm, I'm from, I'm a New Jersey native. So I've kind of seen this play out. Um, one of our senators, Cory Booker, recently got a lot of flag. I don't know if you've seen this, for voting against a uh, an amendment supported by Senator Bernie Sanders, which would basically allow for the purchase of drugs from Canada, which would, you know, lower, lower some costs. A lot of the arguments, uh, you know, against Senator Booker's vote have been that he did receive, you know, some sizable campaign contributions from pharma companies, right? So, you know, it's really, really interesting. This might play out in a really interesting way in the Democratic Party, too, which is dealing with anxiety, uh, a kind of a bit of an anxiety and a culture shift. And we even talked about this on this po- uh, on this podcast before about, um, you know, the layout, the internal politics of the Democratic Party. There are multiple wings. There is a Bernie Sanders wing, which a lot of people argued would have won the presidency. You know, there's, <laughs> I don't know how realistic that might be. It sounds a little bit, again, like we're getting into political fantasy football, which I wish was a thing that you could bet on. Right? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't do terribly. Um I would do better than I actually would at fantasy, at like real fantasy football, but not as well as basketball. Um, but you know, realistically, how 
you know, I wonder how this is going to play out on the Democratic side as well, because this is really, I mean, if we're, you know, we're talking old guard on the Republican side, Booker might be the old guard on the Democratic side, right? I mean, he's, he falls in line with Gillibrand as being, you know, one of the protégés of the Clintons in the Obama era that is kind of falling apart right now. I mean, we had, uh, you know, um, Keith Ellison, uh, as slated, uh, you know, did not get carried out, or I don't think it will be carried out, but uh, for Democratic National Committee chair. I mean, that's really, really interesting because this can be a litmus test for identity on the Democratic side as well. Right. Uh, and I kind of, I guess I kind of failed that litmus test that now exists <laughs> after this. Uh, because, as you know, I was a, I was a Hillary supporter. I, I voted for Hillary. Uh, certainly I had my questions about, you know, how how good of a president she would be and and I had my own issues, but I certainly picked her over over Donald Trump. Um, but you know, even at that time that I was identifying as a Democrat, now after the election, post election, I was able to really kind of go back to more of what I believed, and I wasn't trying to you know push Hillary. Uh, I kind of have been rejected by a lot of people on the left as not being left, uh, and so now I kind of identify as a liberal Republican. Uh, and so Which is a that hell of a test, shift to make right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, it's kind of interesting because, like, I don't know, the Republican Party might become the big tent party. It, it really might. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's a strange thing to think about. But if everybody has to be like Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party, they're really going to struggle moving forward. Uh, and so, you know, it is interesting to see how this all plays out with the Democratic side because Lord knows there is a lot of animosity between all of them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. I, I never see, I feel like this is just a foregone past, but um, I always hear those stories about, you know, Republicans or Republicans and Democrats all coming together to like get drinks at the, on Capitol Hill. I don't think that's, that might not be a thing right now, or it might be a thing because I sure have, uh, sure as hell have had a lot of conversation with Democratic friends in the past uh, month or so feeling lost in terms of identity at their party. So yeah, if we if we are big tenting, I wouldn't be 100% surprised because I've heard a lot of conversations that, you know, kind of echo that feeling of loss, both on the Republican and Democratic side. I mean, does this mean that, you know, now is the time for an independent party? Well, I mean, certainly the circumstances would appear that way. But you know, realistically, I don't see any type of organization in that way. I mean, one thing that American moderates tried to do is, uh, you know, organize thoughts in a way that, uh, you know, plays to both the moderate wing of both sides, of the, uh, both parties. But, you know, obviously, it's a long way to go. Um, yeah, no, it's been a it's been a weird it's been a weird couple of months. That feels like every conversation. That's like the ending of every conversation I have on this podcast. It's been weird. <laughs> It, it, yes, it's been weird. It's been strange. Um, it's going to be an even weirder four years, I, I imagine. Oh well, we could always just lean into it. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do. Just, I'm trying to lean into it. We'll see how it goes. Now, I have a question. So you are you're well, you work in research on the Democratic Caucus side, and you yourself are in, like you know now identifying as more of a Republican after you know this weird election and this entire. Uh, you know, the way this has been playing out. So what does that look like for you personally? I mean, is it just, do you swap lapel pins? Are you <laughs> open them? Like, how does that um, work? I guess so. I guess it depends on where I go. Um, I mean, I'm an Alabama Democrat. Like, and I, 
you we you spoke earlier about how politics is a regional. Um, Lord knows the Alabama Democratic Party is not the most liberal wing of uh, <laughs> of the Democratic Party. It's certainly not you know your your New England style Democrats. Uh, there's a lot of uh, oh, absolutely, and I'm a Massachusetts Republican, so it's it gets us nowhere. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, like I tell people this all the time, they because they get confused why how someone can identify as both a Republican and a Democrat as well. Uh, but you know, here uh, the Democratic Party really stands for public education, and they stand for the public health issues that are facing our state, and that's why I identify as Alabama Democrat. Uh, but nationally, as a Republican, you know. I believe in a strong federalist society. I think that I think that the federal government here's a good example of one thing I hate. I hate when the federal government withholds funds or does something like that to try to push their agenda. I don't think that the federal government should be so powerful that they can that they can force states into either choosing to wither and die because they don't have funding or it's my way or the highway. You know, I don't think that's a good productive system of government. And that's why I support nationally the Republican Party. Wow. That's, I mean, that's really, that's an interesting perspective. I've never, I mean, I, I like a lot of Republicans, had a split ballot this election. You know, I was a Clinton supporter, and then I voted Republican down ballot. And it's, it's really interesting to see, as somebody who's, you know, deeply involved in state politics, how that kind of plays out. That's really, really interesting. And you didn't answer well, my most important question, which was based on lapel pins. So do you have... Uh, <laughs> Yes, I have two lapel pins. I have an elephant and I have Wait, a Democrat. seriously? Yes, I do. Okay, to be fair, to be fair, okay. the, the elephant lapel pin is from like high school. Uh, oh, I got oh it one Christmas way back in high school Hold whenever on. I was like staunch. So you oh, were gosh. a high schooler who wore lapel pins. How? Oh my God, you must have been so cool. No, I didn't even. I didn't even know if I've ever worn it. I think I just got it because, like, so I graduated in 2012, and uh, you know, kind of living in the South and with my parents and everything. Naturally, I was a, a John McCain supporter, mm -hmm. uh, as most people were here. Yeah, and so, so is I that kinda, just like an 18th birthday gift in Alabama? Do you get like a little elephant lapel pin? I'm yes, learning so wait. much. It, I have to back up. It wasn't John McCain, was it? In 2012, no, it was I'm, Mitt Romney. Yeah, okay, so I, I knew I was wrong. I knew I was wrong. I was a Mitt Romney supporter there by you virtue. Go. Uh, but yeah, so like, it, you know, you in Alabama, when you when you turn 18 and vote, they give you a little elephant nowadays. There you go. <laughs> oh, uh, and then I recently got my, my, my donkey. I see. Well, if you wear them both, I feel like that's kind of a... You could wear them one on each lapel. I don't know. Ooh, I don't know. I need I to check like, with GQ and see if they're okay with that. Yeah, I just have, I have like, um, like a League of Republican Women pin that's like this eagle with like banners. It's like it weighs half a pound. I wear it on like sweaters sometimes. It's enormous. That's like the whole thing. And if I wear any other jewelry with it, I look like, I don't know, I look like Biggie Smalls or something. It's weird. <laughs> oh, so I have a question for you. Yeah. You know, in a turn of events here, mm -hmm. um, as a Republican woman... Yeah. You know, you see the, the march, the, the women's march happening next week or next weekend, I believe it is, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I'd love to hear your perspective on, on why, if you feel that Republican women are left out of those types of events. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I think that we've had a lot of conversation and this is, you know, been an issue that I'm grappling with, right? It's like, 
you know, I identify as a feminist, but I'm also a Republican. And I don't think those things have to, you know, be totally different. I was speaking to a woman um, recently uh, named uh, Patrice, who's a, you know, she's the speaker for um, a group called Generation, uh, Generation Opportunity, which is a Republican group. Um, and she identifies as a Republican and a feminist. And it's a really interesting conversation because there are so few of us that it's like this weird little sorority where, you know, we see each other and we're like, oh my goodness, like, I found one. Um, and, you know, it's been a really hot issue of debate because, yes, we want to be supported. And right now, I think there's been a little bit of a conversation post, you know, Mitt Romney's, um, post Mitt Romney's election when he lost, they did a post-mortem and they basically found that, okay, we can't, we can't go it alone. We can't go without women. We can't go without Hispanics. We can't go without African-American voters. But the thing about this election is that they did. And it's really, really interesting because in a lot of ways, I think we feel that we've lost our bargaining chip. You know, we can't hold the party hostage because right now, based on the results of a Trump election, we can just be trusted to vote anyway. And I didn't vote Republican on the national level because I felt like I was being left out of that conversation. And I think a lot of Republican women did. You know, they weren't particularly vocal. There was a group called Republican Women for Hillary. It wasn't, you know, a huge, a huge movement. But there's a lot of conversations right now within at least the Women's March. I think um, there was a there was an interesting um, editorial that was kind of being batted back and forth from the Times this past week about you know the intersectionality debate within the Women's March. Like, do we do we have um, do we have women being adequately you know is it are trans women represented? Are uh, gay women represented? Are women of color represented? And that breakdown in conversation really, you know, it can make some white women feel alienated, whatever. But Republican women aren't even a part of that conversation. You know, we're not even right. being considered. Like, the fact that white Democratic women are feeling like they're edged out means that white Republican women, or Republican women in general, were never even considered. And I don't really feel comfortable. I feel like I would be invading the space of the Women's March. Um, and Partially it's because the platform came out and a lot of it is really democratically aligned, you know? I, right. I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that, you know, I want universal health care or, you know, there are certain measures that are intrinsically, intrinsically linked to democratic politics. I think that there's, you know, there's a way to fight for feminism under a Republican platform. But right now the Republican Party just isn't listening. And it's really, really difficult. I mean, you know, I'm trying to use the platform that I have here, the platform I have, you know, within the... Uh, I'm involved with the League of Republican Women, with, um, you know, young Republicans. And fighting for that voice is a really weird... It's a weird time right now because we're fighting for not just action, but some type of acknowledgement. And I don't know that necessarily we will be edged or will be interested, the party will be interested in our voices in the next five years or the next 10 years. But the reality is, if you look at those electoral maps, in terms of, uh, especially for the white women who voted for Trump, which were a huge number, those women are going to die. And that's not, right. that's not a grim, you know, that's not a grim threat or anything <laughs> like that. It's a reality. It's a political reality. Politically, you know, one of the things you have to consider is that a political base dies. 
And that's what's happening. You know, where the Republican Party is losing the women that will vote for, you know, folks like Trump. If you looked at the, you know, groups of women that, uh, you know, supported supported Hillary Clinton, the Republican women who supported, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton. These are young women, and there is a huge number of Republican women that are being ignored and being left out. And we don't fit within the narrative of something like the Women's March. So right now, we're in the, you know, in a place of, okay, we're not attending the inauguration, we're not talking about it, we're feeling left <laughs> out, but don't know what to say. It's a really, it's really, really interesting to, you know, think about that and bring that up, because... It's a very uncertain time. It's very uncertain. And, you know, something like the Obamacare is a really interesting issue to frame, especially for women, right? Because it often is a feminist issue. You know, the idea that, you know, you might not have your birth control covered, that's a feminist issue. Or, you know, preventative care if you do choose to get pregnant or if you, you know, don't want to have an abortion. That's something that should be covered if we really want to, you know, live in a society that advocates, you know, healthy mothers and healthy families. I don't know how that can't be part of the conversation. So it's really, really interesting. And it's a conversation that is going to have to be addressed at some point. Because the reality is that maybe we can win as Republicans for the next decade, but not the decade after that. So it's it's so interesting that you bring that up because, you know, as a Republican on the, you know, on the national scale, it's something that we're going to have to start talking about. And I'm glad that you right. thought about it too, because it's well, all I've been thinking about. <laughs> I I saw the uh, I saw the platform come out, and you were like the first person I thought of. I was like, "Wow, I bet she pissed," <laughs> <laughs> because I just I was like, you know, I, I think I think you have to have feminism. It has to exist like within republicanism too. Like there, there's like you said, there's areas in republicanism that that can also be feminist issues, like you know birth control and things like that. And so I just, I hate to see it being left out, especially of something like the, the women's March, something that should be so bipartisan and for all women, I hate to see Republican women left out of something like that. Oh, absolutely. And look, that's not just, it's not just something that will have to be included. You know, we don't have to just be included on the Republican side too. The Democratic side, Democratic women are going to have to engage with Republican women because right now, even though we don't have a lot of power in our party, our party has a lot of power. It's very true. And if we're looking for bipartisan agreements, Democratic women are going to have to engage with Republicans. Republican women are specifically more, I think, um, you know, sensitive to these issues. I think we're more likely to be moved. You know, I, I worked for a really wonderful representative named Ann Wagner from Missouri who, uh, you know, did a lot of work to support women, uh, you know, women, women trafficking, you know, financial representation for women who worked on their own. And, you know, that's something... That can be a lost or be considered a lost cause, and it shouldn't be, because there are a lot of really tough, amazing Republican women in the House and Senate right now. I mean, Kathy McMars Rogers, uh, you know, she's the House Majority Leader again. Uh, she was reelected, um, and uh, she beat Joe uh, Bakudis in a kind of tight race out in Washington. And you know, we can't ignore those voices, especially for women in the Republican Party, because you know it matters. You know, right. Democrats need to consider Republican women as a gateway. I mean, you know, women, and this is my hobby horse, so excuse me if I, if I drone on about it, but if we engage women in 
you know, political situations, if they, you know, we see them in the House and the Senate, we need to be able to use that on both sides. Um, you know, there's all those statistics out there that women tend to be more bipartisan. So the wonderful work of, you know, people like Barbara Mikulski in the Senate who just retired uh, to bring together Republican and Democratic women. I really think that women are kind of the binding ground at this point for bipartisan agreement and something that isn't being used right now, but it definitely should be if they were smart. Just saying. If they were smart. If they were smart. <laughs> <laughs> but I might be a little bit biased. So take, say, you know, take that with a grain of salt. I'm always biased, so, you know. <laughs> well, we've certainly enjoyed it. Um, is there anything else you want to get out there? Um, I, we're kind of uh, running out of time, but this was such a good conversation. I so enjoyed having you on. It was. It was great. And I, I hope to, you know, write something that intrigues you to ask me back. Uh, I will <laughs> say that I'm. I'm trying to reactivate my Twitter, so if you want to go follow me at at Ethan Duh, D-A, American. Yes, that is Ethan Duh, American. That is my Twitter <laughs> handle. Uh, if you'll give me a follow, I will certainly follow you back, and I'm sure I will tweet something to piss you off, and we can have a conversation about it. That's good. Okay, you're going through the you're going the Donald Trump method then. Um, no, I just genuinely, people don't like me most of the time, so it just happens. Oh, there you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I can't have a guest on here that won't insult themselves on air. It's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so, so much for being here. Um, that was Ethan Gregory. I'm Teresa Meyer. This is Modcast. Peace.